your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 28 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying an iced oat milk latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the horrifying Ketty Cabin murders. Most horror movies begin with a black screen reading based on the true story, and while many of them are, it isn't often that the story behind the plot is even more horrifying than the film itself. This, however, is one of those cases. The movie The Strangers is a nightmare-inducing project that follows a young couple as they fight for their lives in a remote home that's being stalked by masked murderers. Its inspiration, the famous Keddie Cabin Murders, is a story that is somehow even more spine-chilling. On Saturday, April 11th of 1981, a mother and three children were attacked in their home in the Keddy Resort in California. Three of them were found murdered the next morning, while one of the children will remain a missing person until years after that horrific night. The identity of their killer is still unknown to this day, though the investigation is ongoing and police have expressed that they are more confident than ever that this case will finally have an answer. In 1980, a woman named Glenna Sharp, known by everyone as Sue, left her abusive husband and moved to Quincy, California with her children to start a new life. Her ex-husband was in the military during this divorce, and the Navy provided her with a $250 stipend per month, and she also found work at the Quincy Elks Lodge, which brought in a little more money for the family. Her brother helped her with this move from North Carolina to California, and the town that they moved to was about 150 miles north of Sacramento. They initially moved into a trailer park where they lived for a little while before moving about five miles away into the mountains, a place known as the Keddy Resort. Sue rented Keddy Cabin 28 in the fall of 1981, and it became home for her, her 15-year-old son John, 14-year-old daughter Sheila, 12-year-old daughter Tina, and the two youngest boys, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was 5. She was a completely dedicated mother, described as a quiet woman who loved her family, and to try and better their situation, she had started to take a typing class while her children were in school in Quincy. Keddie had been established as a railroad terminal in the Sierra Nevada mountain range, but once the railroad closed, it lost most of its traffic and its population along with it. With business in the area extremely hard to come by, the town attempted to market itself as a camping and hiking resort area, but this unfortunately failed, and the owner of the Keddie Resort, Gary Mullop, turned his cabins into low-income rental housing. Today, Keddie isn't even really considered to be a town, but a census-designated place within Plumas County, and as of July 1st of 2021, had a population of only 58 people. The cabin that the family lived in was very small, opening into the living room from the front door, and beyond that, the kitchen and the two bedrooms. One was shared by the girls, and the other was shared by the two youngest sons. John, the oldest, stayed in the ground floor basement by himself, connected to the main living area by a flight of stairs. On Saturday, April 11th of 1981, Sue and the kids had been coming and going as usual throughout the day. The two youngest boys, Rick and Greg, had a neighborhood friend staying with them that night, Justin Easton, and they had been home the whole afternoon. John had spent his day in Quincy with a friend named Dana Wingate, who was 17, and Sue and Sheila went to pick up the two friends in town at around 1.30pm, but they headed out again around 3.30pm. They had planned to go back home later on, and even though Sue asked them not to hitchhike, Someone did spot the two on a corner trying to catch a ride at around 9.30 or 10 o'clock p.m. 
While John and Dana were out, Sue spent the later afternoon with Sheila and Tina until the girls went next door to Cabin 27, which was the Seabolt family house, to visit their friends and watch TV. Sheila ended up spending the night there, but Tina returned back to Cabin 28 at around 9.30 p.m. The next morning, April 12th, Sheila returned from the Seabolt home at around 7 a.m. to a completely horrifying scene. This didn't even look like a murder. It was an absolute massacre, and there was blood everywhere. Sue, John, and John's friend Dana were lying dead on the living room floor with electrical cords and medical tape securing their wrists and ankles. I cannot even imagine what Sheila was thinking, but she immediately ran back next door for help. The Seabolt's teenage son, whose name was Jamie, went to the Sharps' home to see if there was anyone still alive, and shockingly found that the three youngsters, Rick, Greg, and their friend Justin, were still asleep in their room, completely unaware of the scene that lay outside their door. The group left through that bedroom window to spare the boys from seeing the horrors that were in the living room. It was at around 8 o'clock a.m. when the police arrived to investigate, trying to determine what exactly had happened the night before. They found that Sue and John had similar injuries, both of their throats had been cut and they'd been stabbed multiple times, with blunt force trauma to their heads. Sue had been gagged with tape holding it in place, and she was naked from the waist down, but there were no signs of any assault. There was a small amount of DNA that was left by a perpetrator on this piece of tape. The blood pattern analysis showed that her legs had at first been splayed apart, but after she died, someone had repositioned her and covered her with a yellow blanket. She also had defensive wounds on her arms, even though John and Dana didn't, meaning that the two of them didn't even get a chance to fight back. Dana's injuries were slightly different. He had also sustained blunt force trauma to his head, but he had also been strangled. All of their bodies were determined to have been moved post-mortem by whoever the attacker was, and there was a lot of evidence that had been left behind at the scene, mostly just because of the awful nature of the violence that had been committed there. Blood was covering the victims and almost everything else in sight, the floor, the walls, the ceiling, bedroom doors, and the railing of the outside stairs. Despite this, it didn't seem that the attacker or attackers had left any of their own blood, which meant that if they had been injured by Sue, John, or Dana, it wasn't a serious injury. One of the only other real clues that was left behind was a bloody fingerprint on the railing for the back door stairs. The police were able to collect two bloodied knives, one a bent steak knife and the other a butcher knife, a claw hammer, and a plastic piece from a BB gun. The butcher knife and the hammer were both found on a small table near the entrance to the kitchen, while the steak knife was found on the floor. Disturbingly, this steak knife was taken from Sue's own home. Later, it would be confirmed that two different hammers had been used to cause the head injuries, as well as a Daisy 880 BB gun, which matched the impressions made from the trauma to Sue's head. At the home, detectives noted that there didn't seem to be any signs of forced entry, but the telephone had been left off the hook and all of the lights were off with the drapes fully closed. Investigators didn't really have anything to go off of to launch an investigation. The three boys who survived claimed that they had slept through the entire incident. This in particular has fallen under an incredible amount of scrutiny, as you can probably imagine. Just based on the brutality of the scene, to not wake up is really difficult to believe, and whoever had broken in had to have known that the boys were in the next room. Investigators tried to explain it as best they could, assuming that maybe someone had interrupted the crime before the killer or killers had the opportunity to kill the three boys as well. In addition to the lack of evidence from the surviving boys, 
Neighbors were only able to recall hearing muffled screams between 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, but when they couldn't decide where the voice was coming from, they just went back to sleep. For such a small community in the middle of nowhere, this sort of violence was shocking, so sorting through the chaotic situation took a few hours before police could really get their bearings. However, if you remember, there was one more person in the Sharp home on the night of April 11th, Tina, who had arrived back to go to sleep at 9.30. Somehow, in the midst of everything else, it had taken them hours to realize that Tina was unaccounted for and nowhere to be found. It is believed that Tina was present at the house during the murders and that she was abducted from it for an unknown reason. So, hanging on to hope that she was still alive, police and townspeople searched roads, woods, and anywhere they could think of, and an all-points bulletin was put out for her as well. The FBI was initially involved in the search for Tina since she was a minor, but only for about a month after the murders. The search for her seemed to go completely cold until April of 1984, three years later. One day, a man named Ronald Fedrini was in the woods about 50 miles southwest of Ketty, in an entirely different county, collecting cans, when he discovered a human skull and mandible in the forest. Initially, investigators thought that these were the remains of a Native American person until they received an anonymous 911 call reporting the remains as belonging to Tina, and creepily, this call came on the third anniversary of the murders, which seems anything but unintentional. Forensic analysis of the teeth confirmed that they did in fact belong to Tina Sharp, the missing victim of the Ketty Cabin murders. Near the bones, detectives found a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, blue jacket, blanket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser, but other than that, there was not anything that could give any clue as to how Tina had died or even when. Even though there was a lot of evidence, and there were a few suspects, no arrests have ever been made in relation to these murders. At the time, as well as to this day, law enforcement has felt that the killer was, quote, more than one person, end quote, which seems a completely reasonable assessment based on the scene itself. Police began their investigation with Jim Sharp, Sue's ex-husband, who she had moved away from only recently. He had been reportedly violent with her in the past, and they were concerned that as Tina's father, he may have been holding her somewhere. The FBI performed a background check and did surveil him for some time, but when he didn't lead them to Tina and provided an airtight alibi, he was immediately dismissed as a person of interest. About a month after the murders, the neighbor who had been in the house that night, Justin, confided in a therapist that he had been having dreams about that night, in which he had tried to stop Sue's bleeding with towels and covered her with a yellow blanket. Police jumped on this, on the possibility that he had actually been a witness and maybe had just blocked out his memories, so the boy was placed under hypnosis to see if he could remember anything else, to which he told a very interesting story. Justin spoke of watching TV before going to sleep when he was awoken by noise in the living room. He claimed that he went out and saw Sue with two men, one of them tall and blonde with a mustache and the other was short and clean-shaven, but both were wearing glasses. He went on to say that John and Dana had returned home during this conversation, and somehow the situation had escalated into the scene that Sheila walked into the next morning. He also mentioned that Tina had come out of her room, and one of the men had taken her out the back door. Obviously, this is fascinating, but the actual scientific basis behind recovered suppressed memories is pretty weak, and modern research shows memory to be not only malleable, but quite unreliable. 
Research conducted by Elizabeth Loftus demonstrated that techniques used by therapists to recover memories were also effective in implanting false memories. While it is true that events can be recalled suddenly, there isn't actually evidence to suggest that this happens with traumatic memories. Instead, the research suggests that victims of a trauma actually have a lot of trouble forgetting the event at all, no matter how much they would like to. And this does not mean that Justin was intentionally lying, but it is possible that he had gotten some information from media reports, and at such a young age he couldn't understand how this type of trauma was affecting him, maybe leading to the story that he did tell. One of the main suspects in the murders became Justin's own stepfather, Martin Smart. Marty lived across the street in cabin 26 with his wife Marilyn and Marilyn's two sons. Besides this obvious neighborhood connection, Marty and Marilyn were actually also in the typing class that Sue had been taking. And Marty had a pretty bad reputation. He had a criminal record and a mean demeanor as well as anger management issues. Marilyn actually claimed that he tried to run her and her son Justin over at one point out of anger. Marty was a veteran and unfortunately he did suffer from PTSD, which may explain some of his behavior patterns. And if Marty were involved, it would also answer the question of why the three young boys were left in their room unharmed since Justin was his stepson. He was questioned by the police where he conveniently told them that a hammer of his had been missing, one with a blue handle. This statement wasn't really taken seriously by the investigators though for whatever reason, and he only even had the one interview. Marty left the area after this interview to go live in Reno, Nevada, and then settled in Oregon where he passed away from cancer in the year 2000. Later, some pretty serious concerns came to light about Marty, however, and it seems that he was actually a close friend of the county sheriff at the time, Doug Thomas, which spurred rumors of a cover-up. Sheriff Thomas did say that he gave a session of advice to the smart couple regarding their marriage at one point, but addressed the suspicions against him more recently, saying, quote, There was no shortage of suspects, but suddenly now everybody 35 years or so later have all figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable is what it is. Martin Smart was not a friend of mine. At one point, he and his wife were having marital problems and they came to my office when I was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them, end quote. The rumors suggesting a cover-up, however, are only further propelled by the two people who claimed that Marty actually confessed to them, Marilyn and a counselor of Marty's. Marty's counselor at the VA in Reno told police that Marty confessed to Sue and Tina's murders, but not to John or Dana's, providing as his motive that Sue had convinced Marilyn to leave him and he was angry with her for it. Reportedly, Sue had been counseling Marilyn on her marriage, and Marty had gone ballistic when he found out about those conversations. In the end, Tina had just been an unlucky witness to Sue's death. The counselor did initially report this not long after the crime itself, but police did not follow up or even log the information as evidence. In a 2008 documentary, Marilyn said that she did believe Marty had done it and that he had confessed to her in a letter saying, quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? End quote. Police never put this letter into evidence. Marilyn also claimed that she had found Tina's bloody jacket in their basement and that she had given this to police, but there isn't any record of this ever happening, so if it is true, police never logged the jacket as evidence either. 
And all of this takes us to the second suspect that I'm going to talk about since police did assume more than one perpetrator. And this person was Marty's friend, John Bobady, who was living at Marty's house at the time and who went by Bo. They only knew each other for a couple of weeks before the murders. Bo was being treated for PTSD at the area's VA hospital. It is reported that on the night of April 11th, Marilyn, Marty, and Bo had been at a local bar, and though they returned home together, Bo and Marty went back out. They went back to the bar much later in the evening, both wearing suits, and many people have jumped on this detail, theorizing that they wanted to be noticed and wanted to stand out from the crowd, maybe so that they would have built-in alibis. Bo was interviewed by the police, but he did tell several lies during this interview. First, he claimed that he had been an officer in Chicago for 18 years. Then he exaggerated the amount of time that he had lived in Ketty, and he also claimed that Marilyn was his niece at one point. Nonetheless, he was cleared at the time, but some really interesting details would later surface about him. Investigators would learn that he was working as an enforcer with the Mafia in Chicago, and they started to theorize that he was actually an informant for the Department of Justice. If this were true, it would explain why the Department of Justice in Sacramento showed early interest in the Ketty murders. And I know that this seems a little bit far-fetched, but bear with me here, because according to some of the source materials that I came across, instead of sending homicide detectives to Ketty, the DOJ sent organized crime investigators. Note that it's not clear what exactly was found to link Bo to the Mafia in Chicago, but it definitely does raise some eyebrows about this case, and the conspiracies are out there. Maybe investigators turned a blind eye to his involvement with the Ketty murders because they were protecting him as an informant. It is definitely fascinating to speculate with this one, but unfortunately we will probably never know, since Bo also left Ketty shortly after the murders, and he passed away in Chicago in 1988. For a decades-old case, there have actually been some more recent developments here, And in 2013, Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood hired a man named Mike Gamberg as a special investigator. Both Greg Hagwood and Mike Gamberg had personal connections to the victims, so when Greg became the sheriff, he decided that it was time to dust off the case files. Sheriff Hagwood had been a schoolmate of Johnny and Dana, and the summer before the murders, they had worked together on a painting crew. And Gamberg was a martial arts instructor who had taught both Johnny and Dana, and he says that Dana was actually in his home the day before he died. In regard to the murders, he has said, quote, it struck this community harder than anything, end quote. Sheriff Hagwood has addressed the theory of a police cover-up himself, which is really interesting, saying, quote, it has brought to light some amazing timelines, histories, and what some may call coincidence. Others may look at it more accusingly. I don't put anything outside the realm of possibility, end quote. Mike was actually a new deputy when the murders occurred, but he wasn't involved in the case until 2013. That year, he found the recording of the anonymous call that had identified the found skull as Tina's back in 1984 at the bottom of an unopened evidence box. Frustrating, but not shocking. On that, Sheriff Hagwood has said, quote, Why that sat in a sealed evidence envelope, never opened, I don't have the answer to that, but we have it now, end quote. The tape was sent out at the time to other agencies to be voice analyzed and compared with audio from suspects. In 2016, a man who was using a metal detector near a dried-up pond in Ketty turned up a hammer that he had found and gave it to police. 
A hammer that had a blue handle, just like the one Marty had described in his interview so many years ago. Sheriff Hagwood was particularly interested in this hammer, believing that someone had intentionally tried to hide it there. And lastly, in 2018, Mike Gamberg reportedly matched the DNA from the murder scene to a living suspect, the DNA sample from the tape found on Sue's body, but no arrests have been made and the name has not been made public. Gamberg says that up to six people could have been involved and named Marty and John, both deceased by then, along with four others. Speaking on the living unnamed suspects, the special investigator said, quote, They better batten down the hatches because we're coming. We're continuing with the investigation and we're doing interviews and we have several persons of interest, end quote. Gamberg's belief is that Sue and Marty were having an affair and Sue was trying to get Marilyn to leave Marty, and he isn't the only officer who believes that Marilyn knows more than she lets on, and maybe she did learn about an affair between her husband and her neighbor, but there is no evidence to suggest that there was one, so it's hard to say. On top of that, Marilyn herself moved out of Ketty the day after the murders, but she is still alive and she did remarry. Unfortunately, for now, there really isn't a conclusion to leave this story with. Sue's surviving children left California to live with an aunt after the murders, but later they had to be placed into foster care when the aunt became overwhelmed trying to care for them and her own children. Sheila has spoken about her experience in a few interviews, and they are incredibly sad to hear. About the horrific discovery she made on that day, she said, quote, The most vivid image I have is of my brother laying there. The neighbors say I came back screaming. They said I said it was Johnny, but I don't remember that, end quote. On her mother, Sheila has said, quote, I would like my kids and grandkids to know that she was a very kind and caring person. She would have done anything for them and probably spoiled them rotten, end quote. And Sheila believes that the murders were committed by Marty Smart and his friend Bo. The Ketty Resort itself fell into disrepair and today is an abandoned site, and even Cabin 28 is no longer standing, demolished in 2004 down to its foundation. On the current status of this case, Sheriff Hagwood has said, quote, There are people locally who know more than they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them, and we know who they are, and we know where they are, and I have every confidence that they either participated after the fact, or they have first-hand information, end quote. Sheila Sharp has expressed her gratitude that after more than three decades, the police are finally taking this case as seriously as any family member would be able to hope for. And no, there are no answers yet, but it is always safe to assume that police are withholding information to protect its confidence and that they have more leads than we are aware of just yet. It would be far from the first cold case to be solved after many decades, and with the renewed effort, it seems that great strides can be made in this investigation, and the fresh set of eyes may just be enough to finally see justice for Sue, John, Dana, and Tina. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the Ketty Cabin murders, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.